another attempt at a copper deal, this time courtesy of Barrick in pursuit of First Quantum. Reported later by Bloomberg, First Quantum rebuffs informal approach from Barrick Gold. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Welcome back and welcome to all new listeners. It's great to have you as we follow this incredible drama that is happening in the metals markets in this crucial decade where it feels increasingly like we are moving towards a kind of not depletion necessarily of resources, but perhaps a scarcity of a certain kind. And the only reason I say that is because of what I'm hearing from the people that are being paid to know. I mean, let's start with these mining CEOs who are you know, paid millions of dollars a month in order to be the most informed people in the world and steer these multinational, multi-billion dollar companies into more profitability. And what you're seeing, what I would call experts, they are focusing on copper. There are a couple of quotes I wanted to mention here in this really interesting article on northernminer.com, mining deal-making declines, but Beatty and others see opportunities. And in that article, they quote Frank Port, founder and chief investment officer of Kelowna, British Columbia-based Bridgeport Capital. And he had a very interesting quote referring to M&A in the mining sector. Quote, the short list for targets look like Tosico Mines and Centera Gold, Mergers will move into fifth gear by this year end, and 24-25 will be a frenzy as the realization sets in there is a major shortage of copper. The world as we know it is about to get very expensive. Now, this is fascinating because, of course, we know of copper as Dr. Copper, right? The gauge of the economy. Now. We've all been engaged and listening in on this inflation debate for a couple of years now. But you wonder if Dr. Copper still, in fact, holds its title as the gauge of the economy, all signs are pointing to copper going higher. And as Frank Port puts very pithily, Mergers will move into fifth gear by this year end, and 24-25 will be a frenzy as the realization sets in that there is a major shortage of copper. The world as we know it is about to get very expensive. I am repeating that because, again, these are the people that are paid to know this. So that is one thing. So, again, we're seeing another sign that this copper story is real. And perhaps we didn't need it, but at the end of the day, I'm not in the London Metal Exchange. I'm not unloading copper cathode from ships and and whatnot. So I can only go based on the stories that I see here. But again, we're seeing a choir here of deals. Glencore pursuing tech resources. Newmont successfully pursuing Newcrest, who has a lot of copper. And Barrick now has been reported to have approached First Quantum. And Mark Bristow, the CEO of Barrick, has made no secret that he considers copper a strategic metal. I believe the quote is, copper is as strategic as gold is precious. 
So we have more evidence for this copper story, more concern about a looming shortage. So that is one big thing that continues to build momentum as a narrative in our discussion that we're having here. Another very interesting discussion that we're going to see in the news section is government after government around the world is now extraordinarily focused on lithium. We see a story about India that wants a 3% royalty on all lithium that is sold from the country. We see Ghana and Namibia again banning exports of lithium that are not processed in the country. And the EU and Argentina have just made a deal that is focused on lithium. So it seems like policymakers are all in on lithium. Now, I want to return to this story, though, because this story that Colin McClellan wrote also addresses lithium. And I think this is quite an interesting quote based on the stories we're going to hear today. Ross Beatty says he's cautious about green metals such as lithium when technological change like the introduction of a new type of battery could make them redundant. He also questions how governments are funding billions of dollars for exploration as part of their economic nationalism when the more important mining gap with China is its control of processing plants. So two very interesting ideas here. And again, when it comes to knowing what's going on in the mining sector, my bet is on the mining CEOs over the policymakers. And I don't think that's a controversial thought. So we're starting to see them going all in. I mean, we saw it with Chile as well, with the, what we might call a quasi-nationalization, which I have to say is looking more and more like a nationalization as time goes on because now it sounds like they want more than 50% of each of these mining companies. So at a certain point, that does actually become a, a nationalization, does it not? You know, even if people are allowed to take minority shares in the companies they own, they no longer control those companies. So it is a nationalization, isn't it? And finally, just a quick note on that point, Cadelco was basically, from my understanding, supposed to be in charge of that nationalization. The CEO just recently abruptly resigned from his role as CEO of Cadelco. And that almost feeds into our first story here on copper, because apparently Cadelco's copper production has been harder and harder to maintain, while also they're in charge of the lithium nationalization. So. Again, this week, it feels like copper and lithium is where a lot of the fireworks seem to be. And so we're going to see that this episode. And we have a wonderful episode coming up here with Paul from the Sirius Report checking in with Paul's view on copper, gold, and oil. So it's a fascinating interview. It is an extended interview. I mean, Paul's a tricky interview because he gives very long, fascinating answers. And so you got to pick your battles beforehand. So I attempted to really structure this interview and focus it on these three topics. 
which are at the heart of so many issues right now. And so Paul gives a wonderful exposition of where we are in the copper, gold, and oil markets from a fundamental and from a political perspective. And so another fascinating interview with Paul from the Sirius Report. And also coming up, we have a wonderful CEO spotlight with Alistair Waddell, who is president and CEO of Inflection Resources and chairman at Headwater Gold for this week's CEO Spotlight. So big thank you to Alistair Waddell and Inflection for sponsoring this week's episode and another very interesting interview, again, focused on copper and gold in Australia. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Alistair Waddell, President and CEO at Inflection Resources and Chairman at Headwater Gold for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome Alistair Waddell, President and CEO at Inflection Resources and Chairman at Headwater Gold to the Northern Miner Podcast for this week's CEO Spotlight. Alistair, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on here. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. For those that maybe aren't familiar with Inflection Resources, could you give us a little bit of background of the company and how long you guys have been around, what you guys are up to? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Inflection Resources, we're a Canadian and U.S. listed exploration company focused on the uh, discovery of large copper gold deposits uh, in eastern Australia, specifically in New South Wales. And the company came together in early 2018, and it was an opportunity that was recognized in uh, northern New South Wales in a belt of rocks called the Macquarie Arc. And this belt of rocks is host to some of Australia's biggest mines, most notably Newcrest Mining's uh, K-year operation. This is their, their flagship mine. The flagship mine for evolution mining, Cal, is in the belt. And we also have the North Parks deposits as well. These are big copper mines. Uh, they're owned by a Chinese group in a joint venture with Sumitomo. And to cut a long story short, this belt of rocks uh, called Macquarie Arc disappears to the north under a blanket or veneer of transported sedimentary cover. And it was essentially masking the underlying prospective geology. And at the time, back in 2018, this was completely free of claims or exploration licenses. And that was really the opportunity. It was very clear from reviewing the uh, an airborne geophysical survey, a magnetic survey that had been flown by the government of New South Wales, that the belt of rocks, prospective rocks, continued under this sediments. And ultimately, we were able to secure the licenses. And in fact, we are the biggest holders of exploration licenses in, in New South Wales, covering the entire northern extension of this belt of rocks. So since 2018, we've been systematically exploring the belt and uh, we've been doing that in a very systematic and disciplined manner, essentially drilling holes through the sedimentary cover, doing short diamond drill holes into the, the prospective basement rocks, looking for evidence that they were either onto or in the vicinity of one of these large copper gold porphyry systems. It's an incredibly exciting area, copper right now, and gold as well, but you see a lot going on on the copper front in the M&A area. So a couple of questions here. What is the name of the project and what have you found so far? 
So it's not a specific name of a, of a project. We, we call it the, the Northern New South Wales project, if you will. But we have multiple target areas within the greater portfolio. So we have over 7,000 square kilometers of exploration licenses extending over about 300 kilometers from north to south. And as I said, we've been sort of systematically plugging away, drilling holes through this cover, looking for these porphyry deposits or the alteration halos around these these porphyry deposits. They've got very distinctive characteristics in terms of geochemistry and alteration that we can recognize by looking at the rocks. And we've identified a number of large centers, which we consider very exciting. We have not yet drilled that boom of a hole right into the heart of a, a you know, a, a nice uh, copper gold system. But we've certainly got a lot of indications within the right part of the world. We've got all the right alteration, the right geochemistry, and, and critically, in this part of the world, having rocks of the right age as well. So uh, we, we've got these systems identified, and, uh, and that's really given us a lot of encouragement that the model and the strategy is correct. And uh, really, it's now a case of just systematically drill testing these targets. And there's a lot of them. There's about 30 targets that require further drilling. But we've got one in particular called Duck Creek. This is probably the one that's caused you know, the most interest. And this is the one that we're, we're going to be setting about to drill here uh, in the coming days. Excellent. Now, as far as I understand, there's a partnership of sorts or there is interest from another miner. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And is that related to this project? It is indeed. So we very recently just announced the closing of a, of a deal with Anglo Gold Ashanti. Uh, this is obviously a very large major gold mining group. And uh, we've entered into this multi-year agreement across pretty much the entire portfolio of properties in New South Wales, whereby Anglo Gold can earn an initial 65% interest in up to five of our individual exploration licenses by spending up to 145 million Australian dollars. So this is a massive deal for a relatively small company like ours. And what this really allows us to do is to really accelerate the exploration program and drill lots and lots of holes. And this is really the key to success pretty much in any exploration company, drilling lots and lots of holes. And we're drilling holes into these very large complex features we consider analogous with these large deposits further to the south and, and the belt. So it's going to be a very exciting period. And now having Anglo Gold as, as a partner, this is really just going to accelerate the whole whole program. And uh, it's a very comprehensive agreement. It's sort of a multi-stage deal. Sort of a phase one part of the deal is they spend $10 million across the entire portfolio just to, uh, as part of a first pass sort of program. At the end of that phase one, they can select up to five projects and then spend an initial seven million Australian dollars on each target to get to 51% interest in each target. And then to get to 65%, they have to spend 20 million Australian dollars on each target. So it's a very, you know, substantial agreement. And then the other interesting little aspect to this is to get to a 75% interest in the, each project they have to complete a pre-feasibility study. As I'm sure some of your listeners will understand, this is a major undertaking. We're looking for a, essentially a large uh, porphyry deposit here. So a, a pre-feasibility study would be a massively expensive and quite onerous sort of project to, to complete. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big deal. And uh, we're obviously thrilled to be uh, working with Anglo Gold. I'm sure. I mean, it's kind of every explorer's dream is to start making big deals like that and getting interest from a major. So that is incredibly exciting. So 
what is the roadmap then? I guess, like, does Anglo Gold Ashanti take the wheel at this point or how does it work? Like, where are things going then? What do investors really have to look forward to in the coming weeks, months and years? Yeah, great question. So it's a very interesting time in the in the history of the company. So we're just about to kick off the Largedale drill program, which we'll, we'll talk about more over the coming weeks and months through our, our, our news releases. But the bottom line is, you know, we're going to be drilling about 30,000 meters as part of a, a phase one drill program. So there's going to be a lot of news flow coming out of that uh, all across the entire portfolio. It is very much sort of a, a drill and kill type strategy, if you will. We're testing big geophysical features. So it's going to be uh, there's going to be targets that we we drill holes into and uh, we don't get anything of great interest. But uh, we know we've got some encouragement already. So it's going to be a very exciting period. And, um, you know, I often sort of joke, you know, I mean, every hole is an adventure. It's uh, we're, we're testing something very, very large in a belt of rocks that's known for very big mines that's never been drill tested before. I mean, this is key. The scale of the targets we're testing and the fact they've never been drilled before just makes it very, very exciting. And specifically for for an exploration geologist like myself, uh, every hole, um, you just never really know quite what we're going to be hitting. So uh, that that's going to be the, uh, the exciting part of this going forward. Excellent. So just as we wrap up here, actually, just one very quick question before I ask you a more general question. But has this area ever been drilled before? So, no, this was really the amazing opportunity. Uh, you know, the southern part of the belt where the geology outcrops in and around these major mines that have been developed, you know, has been explored extensively. And, you know, if, if I could plot up a map showing you all the density of the drill holes across the belt, you know, the, the, the bottom uh, southern part of the belt would almost be black with drill colors. But the northern extension of this belt where it goes under cover has just received very cursory exploration. And that was really kind of a staggering uh, opportunity. And I think people perceived the cover sequence to be, uh, you know, a bit of a challenge, which, which it certainly is. But that challenge has, in fact, created the opportunity. And we were able to acquire these exploration licenses just through staking. So it's a very simple, clean story. There's no underlying deals. It's just... Um, it's amazing that these have never been drill tested. We're doing this, you know, two hours up, up the highway from from Cadia. This is one of Australia's biggest gold mines. And it's just staggering to me that that these uh, these targets have never been drilled before. Well, again, it sounds very exciting. So in our closing seconds here, in just a few lines, uh, what do you want investors to know about your company? Yeah, I mean, really, the, the, the major takeaways are the scale of the targets that we're testing. These are very, very large targets. But that obviously have got the uh, the scale to attract the attention of a major mining company. We're doing this in a fabulous mining-friendly jurisdiction, Australia, and specifically New South Wales, which obviously it's uh, it's a true tier one jurisdiction. The government of New South Wales actively encourages groups like ours to explore and invest in in the state. It's a very technically driven story. Didn't really get into this, but the, the technical guys behind this have been seriously successful at finding big deposits in Australia and elsewhere, 100% ownership. So it's clean, simple story, no underlying complex deals, and we're going to be aggressively drilling. So uh, we've got a, a long pipeline of news flow coming out of this. So over the next weeks and months, and um, as I mentioned, every hole is testing something big and new. So it's going to be, a, going to be an exciting ride. Excellent. And one final, very small question before we wrap up here, where can people invest in your company? So we're listed on the uh, the Canadian Stock Exchange, the CSC, with the ticker AUCU. 
and in the United States on the OTCQB with the ticker AUCUF. Alistair Waddell, President and CEO at Inflection Resources and Chairman at Headwater Gold, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you very much. Turning to the website, First Quantum rebuffs informal approach from Barrick Gold. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. First Quantum Minerals recently rebuffed an informal takeover approach from Barrick Gold, the world's second largest producer of precious metal, as miners scour the globe for deals, people with knowledge of the matter said. Barrick made overtures to First Quantum in the last few months as part of its search for ways to expand in copper, the people said. First Quantum indicated it wasn't keen on a combination and declined to enter any substantive talks, according to the people. Shares of First Quantum jumped as much as 13% in Canadian trading Thursday, the biggest intraday gain since November, valuing the company at $17.3 billion. Barrick fell 1.7% in New York, giving the company a market value of $28.9 billion. Barrick and First Quantum aren't currently in formal discussions, the people said, asking not to be identified because the information is private. It remains unclear whether Barrick will revive its interest, according to the people. Representatives from Barrick and First Quantum declined to comment. Very interesting. And another follow-up story, world's number two gold miner is trying to get bigger in copper. This is Bloomberg News as well. Via mining.com, for a company with gold in its name, Barrick Gold has become noticeably fixated on copper. The world's second largest bullion producer recently approached First Quantum Minerals to discuss a potential takeover, Bloomberg reported last week. And while the move was unsuccessful, Barrick's informal overtures were rebuffed. Its interest in buying a $17 billion copper miner provides the starkest evidence yet of a shifting focus at the companies whose origins lie in Nevada's gold veins. Scrolling down, while gold companies historically prided themselves on being pure plays for investors wanting exposure to bullion prices, Barrick sees copper as a strategic commodity underpinned by the demand for electrification. It's often found alongside gold and ore bodies and can be processed using similar methods. Copper is critical, quote, if you want to be relevant, end quote, in mining, Brousseau said on the company's latest earnings call. Quote, as a gold miner, you're going to have to grow and include copper in your portfolio, end quote. So that is the latest on the Barrick First Quantum story. Turning to the Cadelco story that we mentioned in the introduction, Cadelco Top Brass seeks to reassure market after CEO quits. This is Reuters via mining.com. Chilean state miner Cadelco, the world's largest copper producer, said Friday it would stick to its strategy and operations in a bid to reassure markets following the surprise resignation of its well-known chief executive. The statement, signed by Cadelco's board of directors and main executives, came after CEO Andre Sugaret said this week he would leave the post at the end of August, citing personal reasons and complexities facing the miner. The board and executives said Cadelco's strategy would keep the organization, quote, mobilized around our common purpose, end quote, regardless of leadership changes. The statement also highlighted a series of structural projects Cadelco has been developing to compensate for declining outputs at its mines. It also stressed the progress made over the past year implementing its strategy to address challenges. Cadelco has been shaken by a series of production problems, accidents, and climate events, which in 2022 brought its production to the lowest in a quarter of a century. 
The resignation of Sugaret, a respected engineer who gained prominence leading the rescue of 33 trapped miners at the San Jose mine in 2010, adds pressure on the company, which since April has also been tasked with developing Chile's lithium industry. So that is the latest on Cadelco and the abrupt resignation of the CEO. Continuing on, EU-Argentina signed raw materials MOU with lithium in focus. This is Reuters via mining.com. Argentina's president and the chief of the European Union signed a Memorandum of Understanding, MOU, on Tuesday to boost cooperation on sustainable raw materials during an event in Buenos Aires in a push for clean energy tie-ups. The agreement is designed to boost cooperation on climate-friendly infrastructure as well as new research on raw materials, including lithium, an ultralight electric vehicle battery metal that governments worldwide are keen to secure supply of. And we have a quote from EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, quote, Lithium is very important because it is crucial for clean energy technologies. And she cited an estimated 12-fold rise in lithium demand in Europe by 2030. Argentina is the world's fourth largest producer of lithium and has been attracting a wave of investment. The country, along with Chile and Bolivia, is in South America's so-called lithium triangle, which holds the largest trove of the metal in the world. Von der Leyen continued, quote, My aim is that we do everything we can so the Mercosur-EU agreement is concluded as soon as possible. I think the bulk of the work has already been done. And Argentine President Alberto Fernandez said there are some kinks in the deal to iron out, citing issues such as Europe looking to protect its farm sector and stringent environmental clauses that could impact South American producers. Quote, We ask for a balanced agreement where we all win. Those are the things we have to talk about. Doesn't sound as close as Ursula von der Leyen is suggesting, does it? Continuing on, India considers lithium mining royalty at 3% of LME price. This is Reuters as well via mining.com. India's federal government plans to fix the rate of royalty that mining companies must pay for extracting lithium at 3% of prices prevailing at the London Metal Exchange, two government sources said. India, which has been exploring ways to secure supplies of lithium, a critical raw material used to make electric vehicle batteries, in February found its first lithium deposits in the federally administered region of Jammu and Kashmir. The government is expected to auction the newly found lithium blocks with estimated reserves of 5.9 million tons later this year. And we have a quote from a source who is unnamed, quote, We studied the royalty rates in other lithium mining countries. The royalty rates in Australia is 3% of LME and is 4.5% of LME in Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile, called the Lithium Triangle. So this is interesting. So this is nothing new what India is doing here, as Australia, Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile have also asked for similar royalties. Continuing on, Namibia seeks to tap resource potential after lithium ore ban. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Namibia is pushing ahead with plans to seek more value from the metals and other resources it produces, despite criticism the policy will deter foreign investors. The South African nation last week banned exports of unprocessed lithium and other critical minerals used in clean energy technologies. Mines and Energy Minister Tom Elwindo defended Namibia's policy of adding value, saying a stronger industrial base would enhance the country's appeal to investors while creating jobs. And we have a quote from El Window. 
Without some of these minerals being processed on our continent, in our countries, there is no way we are going to industrialize. We need to get more out of our resources. So that is Namibia. Now turning to Ghana. Ghana plans to process its first lithium locally. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Ghana plans to process its first lithium locally to ensure it maximizes its revenue from the metal, a key component of electric vehicle batteries, Minister for Lands and Natural Resources Samuel Jinapur said. And we have, it's a similar story, isn't it? Jinapur said, quote, we will not export our green minerals in their raw form. And he said that at the Bloomberg New Economy Gateway Africa Forum in Morocco on Wednesday, he continued, quote, at the very least, we must participate at some level of the value chain, end quote. And there's an additional comment here. Ghana mined 116 tons of gold in 2022, restoring it to its place as Africa's top producer, and new investments may make the lead, quote, unassailable. Very interesting. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year bond. So the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond is yielding 3.765%, so only 0.02% higher than last week. We have been tracking this in the U.K. 10-year gilt significantly. I mean, it has come down today, but earlier today, I mean, it's all the way down at 4.344%, but earlier today, it look like it's smashed against 4.5, which is getting pretty intense over there. Let me just get the high today, 4.492%, and then it dropped precipitously. But that is quite something. Again, as we keep saying here, last fall, when we had all those issues with the UK pension fund crisis, like I don't see anything higher than 447 so should that continue? And I've been seeing articles, too, on the UK tenure, how that is starting to cause problems, even if it's down here at 4.33. So interesting times in the bond market there. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,954.35 per ounce. That is $10 lower than last week. Silver is also lower at $23.95 per ounce. That is 26 cents lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $974.88 per ounce. That is $16 lower than last week. And palladium is trading higher at $1,409.70 per ounce. That is $76 higher than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is 12 cents higher at $3.87 per pound. Iron ore is $2 higher at $113.02 per metric ton. Aluminum is a penny higher at $1.02 per pound. Lead is $0.05 cents higher at $0.99 cents per pound. Nickel is trained at $10.41 per pound. That is $0.87 cents higher than last week. And tin is also higher at $12.35 per pound. That is $0.33 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.39 per pound, 
and lithium is trading at $43.66 per kilogram. That is $0.09 lower than last week. Uranium is trading at $57.75 per pound. That is $2 higher than last week. And zinc is also higher at $1.10 per pound. That is $0.04 higher than last week. Zooming out. A bit of a mixed bag with precious metals edging lower, with the exception of palladium, which has been fairly volatile recently and so is up on the week. Copper is higher, aluminum is higher, lead is higher, nickel is significantly higher, tin is healthily higher, and you know lithium continues to be stable at around $43, and uranium significantly is higher, and zinc. So kind of looks like industrial metals have a small wind in their sail with nickel leading the way. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back Paul from the Sirius Report with a fascinating perspective on copper, gold, and oil. And of course, Paul is focused on geopolitics, so he gives primarily the political context on the situation. And of course, Paul is incredibly critical of the West, but however we might feel about Paul's views, they are always informed. And with that, I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Paul from the Serious Report to the Northern Miner podcast. His interviews are some of our most listened to shows, so I'm always thrilled to hear what he has to say. An unconventional thinker. Paul, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Adrian. Thanks for asking me to come back. It's always a pleasure, and I've spent my whole entire life deemed to be unconventional and controversial, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's what you say and how it first fruit in terms of the reality of what we say. And for me, it's about, you know, I'm not there to to toe the party line or be a populist. It's there just to say the things that we understand to be reality. And in the fullness of time, if they prove to be the case, and I think that justifies our stance, even at times when people get a bit upset by it, but so be it. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on, and there are so many things we could discuss. So what I want to try and do here is kind of narrow the focus onto basically three little subjects that are not so little, but copper, gold, and oil, and then see if we can just get your understanding of these markets. So let's start with copper here. What is your sense of the copper market? I mean, from my perspective, we hear of kind of low inventories on the London Metal Exchange, even just the exchanges in general. We don't need to stick purely to copper here, but BHP came out, a senior person, saying they no longer uh, felt that the nickel price was reliable from the LME. And then just recently, the French metals company and processor, they were just saying how the ferro-nickel price, which is used for steel, is no longer reliable and they're going to Shanghai for their ferro-nickel price. What is your sense of the copper and industrial markets in general, but copper specifically, if you can? No, it's a a great conversation, and it's part of this whole perception of what you might term commodity bull markets that people see in the future, even though there are contradictory indicators, because in order to have a bull market, you need enormous amounts of consumption 
globally, not just in, in one jurisdiction. And the argument is, well, if nations are in recession or depression, why would that be the case? But again, we have to be careful that we don't focus on what's going on in the West and assume that applies to the rest of the world because it doesn't. I mean, you know, we often talk about a global financial crisis in 2008, and it wasn't. It was a Western financial crisis that spilt over into the global south or, you know, the emerging markets. But to come back to your point, and you make a great point at the start, there is increasing concern in commodity giants and, and even small commodities companies that may have small deposits, like in, we'll reference copper as the example, who are very concerned about price mechanism. They don't feel it's representative anymore. I'm not going to pick on individual exchanges, but there's a feeling, and we've, in a broad sense, with commodities, there's always this concern that somehow the infantry doesn't match you know, or the supply doesn't match the demand. And at times, we've had serious problems in what I would prefer to refer to as paper markets, where there's this this complete dislocation and the price just basically reflects that. And it's huge. You have this huge illiquidity in these markets. And I think commodities giants and lesser companies are right to reflect upon that and to say, you know, we're not happy. And the reason there is a move to go to, to Shanghai, which everyone knows about the Shanghai Gold Exchange and the Shanghai Silver Exchange, but they have other commodities exchanges and they're growing and they have been for a number of years. And the reason is because their belief is that this is a an exchange where if you want to buy a, I don't know, a, a ton of copper, they have a ton of copper, that these markets actually reflect supply and demand. And therefore, on that basis, you're going to want to then sell or trade in, in markets you feel have reflect reality. They are durable. Now, okay, there's the issue with the, the Chinese side is they don't have the same volume, but I mean, that volume is growing, so it, it's maturing. And of course, the other thing is for China, it's a bonus because then they get to have more mature markets in commodities, trading in yuan terms, which is part of their drive to have yuan, you know, internationalization. But with regards to copper, it's an interesting market. And obviously, as it last Friday on my own podcast, I did a little segment on copper. So I'll make reference to that. That's fine. It's not a problem. Where obviously, the green revolution is what it is. I strongly refute a lot of the claims about the need for it. We've talked in the past about that it's just simply unviable economically, financially, to, that this would ever have come you know, to fruition the way they want to. But the argument is there's going to be a need increasingly, okay, for wind farms where you need copper, electric vehicles, power grids, etc. And, you know, for me, the bigger focus may be more because I'm I don't see wind farms uh, in the West growing to the extent people imagine. Wind farms work in certain parts of the world. China, ironically, has been very successful in this regard, and the amount of energy they produce is growing 50, 60, 80% a year. But if you look at the power grid and how we expect globally for power grids, you know, if we look at Africa as one example, we have a massive amount of demand to have robust power grids in the future because Africa, as it grows 
develops as, as a continent and it has enormous resources. And therefore, you want to get the resources out the ground and you want to grow and develop the economy. You're going to need more robust power grids. This is a statement of the obvious. So in one way or another, I would perceive the demand for copper going forward will be substantial. Okay, you can argue the, the angle of electric vehicles, but I'm, I'm not so convinced by that in the longer term. But I think other technologies will require copper in the future. I mean, apart from ironically precious metals, copper has the highest conductivity of metals. So it's, it's right to be used, as you said, like in power grids. Now, there are projections that there will be significant shortfalls in the next five to 10 years. We're talking millions of tons a year. And the other thing, of course, is compared to conventional petrol, diesel, car engines, the electric vehicles use four or five times the amount of copper. Wind farms use two, three times the amount of copper compared to coal-fired power stations, nuclear, gas, etc. So there's an argument to suggest that this shortfall is a reality. I mean, and then the question is, okay, to what extent does this so-called green revolution happen? And in the West, I think it's debatable. I think in the global South, we will see a huge expansion of it because they ironically are not just developing it for the sake of developing it, for some ideological belief that if we don't, the plant will die and we'll all cease to exist in 5, 10, 20 years. And they've been saying this for decades. They're doing this on the basis that it's sensible to have a mix. And if we can rely less on fossil fuels going forward, but it's like China, it's, it's very slow. They're not phasing out oil and gas. They're, in fact, they're increasing oil and gas imports. But if you take a measured approach to this, then the so-called green revolution, how much is the percentage of copper will be consumed in those projects? And there's a lot of people saying 10, 20, 30, 40. There's people as high as 50 or 60%. So the question is, if that happens, what does that mean in terms of copper shortages? Well, suddenly it becomes a reality and, and a significant reality. So this is why we're definitely seeing big players wanting to buy copper resources, BHP, Rio Tinto, et cetera. They're definitely showing an interest in it. Now, obviously, that's all well and good, but then the question is, how is this financed? And it requires a huge amount of investment and some copper deposits would not be economically viable to take out the ground at current prices, which is, I don't know, $8,000 per ton or something. Roughly. A lot of these, the price would have to double. Well, okay, because if there's a demand and the demand needs to be satisfied, but in order to get that, these deposits, you know, the, the actual capex costs and opex costs are so much higher, then the price has to reflect this. Because you're not going to take a ton of copper out of the ground and be making a loss on it. So the question is, okay, what's the ramification of that? A, it takes a long time to go from finding copper deposits or proving up copper reserves, getting it into production, and the cost enormous billions and billions of dollars equivalent. And then the question is, having done this, and then you're extracting it at the price, and, and if you have to pay uh, to the current price two times, two and a half, three times, that means that you're going to have produced price inflation because if you want to make uh, some power grids and copper prices are a threefold increase, then how much more is it going to cost to manufacture a power grid? 
what's the cost implication for electric vehicles, wind farms, etc.? It drives the pricing, as we know, because commodities are inflationary. Right? If, you, if the price gets higher and there is this demand. And then, of course, the flip side to all this is there's all this de- desire for electric vehicles, wind farms. But then the, the whole sort of green revolution then goes, well, we don't like these mining projects because they damage the environment. Well, make your mind up what you want. Do you want electric vehicles, wind farms, et cetera, or don't you? And if you want them, there's an environmental impact. So the flip side is that then is there going to be huge pressure to try and prevent more and more mining projects come to fruition, even if that's feasible. And therefore, if they don't, then what does that mean? We're going to have potentially huge demand for copper in this case. Little, very little copper, and maybe the shortfall annually becomes much more than five, six, seven, eight, ten million tons. And we know what happens then. It drives the price up. When there's a demand and, and not a lot of supply, the price will go up. And we get back to this situation where then we start to get producer price inflation, rather like you get with energy. You know, we're back to that old story of if you want to buy Russian energy and it costs you three times less than you're paying for alternatives, whether you're buying Russian energy indirectly. So there is producer price inflation baked in the cake because energy is the lifeblood of everything. And energy is the lifeblood of getting copper deposits out the ground. So you have the energy component, and then you have the supply demand constraints that would obviously affect the price of copper as well, and then where you utilize that copper. So you know, people talk about commodity bull markets, and maybe it's great for investing in those projects. But I always have to temper this because I've spent quite a lot of time in the past where I worked on all sorts of commodities projects in terms of we used to assess the viability of them and whether it was sensible to to acquire these on someone's behalf or buy a stake in them. And there's about 50, 100 metrics we used to run to determine whether it was a a solid investment. And sometimes you could have enormous deposits, maybe copper or maybe it is, but let's just say it was copper for the discussion. And then you look at the viability of it and go, it's not economically viable to get this out of the ground at current prices. Or, okay, there's geopolitical considerations, et cetera, but just the pure economic finance complicates this. So we can't have this simplistic thinking, well, there's all these copper deposits and we're just going to you know, go and get them out the ground and there's no consequences for doing this. So, yeah, I think copper, potentially, there is going to be a huge amount of demand in the future. I think the demand might come more from the global south. And, again, this is one of these situations where are a huge amount of the deposits in the global south and is the global south going to look after itself, the so-called friendly nations who all trade with each other? and want to trade in non-dollar terms going forward versus the West that goes, well, we need these resources like copper, but where are we going to buy them from? Because we've upset all these nations because of how we treat them for decades and beyond, so that they're not thinking in the West about the ramifications of that either. But, okay, there's the argument that Western companies and big commodities companies could buy stakes in these countries, but buying a stake in it, doesn't necessarily always work out ideally for them either because it's not a reflection on the company. It's the jurisdiction. It's the political pressure that can be brought to bear. And so it does complicate matters. But but in a, in a broad sense, copper is very interesting. 
it's often been much maligned in the past, but okay, times are changing and uh, the need for copper is certainly increasing. To what extent at this point is difficult to quantify, but in a broad sense, it is going to be a demand problem or a demand supply problem in the future. And we have to reflect upon that and understand what the ramifications might be in the process. Very interesting. So a takeaway from what you're saying here is, it sounds to me like we need a higher copper price because we're going to need more copper at some point. Yes, for sure. And that's the and the question is, okay, I mean, there's the demand supply. So, you know, if you've got a, a big supply and there's huge demand, you're going to be able to dictate the price more. You're, you can raise the price, but also, you know, there might be massive copper deposits somewhere. But when we start to work out the capex costs and the opex costs, then we're going, do you know what? We can't get a ton of this out of the ground for $8,000 a ton. Sorry, we're going to need it double that price. You know? and, and, and that's just to be economically viable. Okay, and we have to be careful with this. In a broader sense, in mining terms, there's always the argument, you get the low-hanging fruit first. And then deposits get more and more complicated. You might have open cast mining, then you have to go in underground mining. And you may have them at greater depths and, and it's more difficult to get them out of the ground. And, you know, it, therefore also the grades might be inferior. So the problem with that is then you're in a situation where it gets costs a lot more to get it out of the grounds. Now, of course, there might be a flip side to this, that as the multipolar world develops and the global south gets the financing and isn't being hamstrung by the West, which it has been for decades, colonialism and who knows what else and beyond decades of colonial times. The question might be, there is a lot of deposits there that would be relatively cheap to get out of the ground. But here's the question. If you want to really industrialize and grow the African continent, then it's in Africa's interest to keep these deposits in Africa, not to sell them to the rest of the world. And then the question is, okay, they need energy, and where do they get cheaper energy from? Well, Iran and Russia can manufacture oil and gas extremely cheaply. So they get the markets, they get the cheap energy, their capex costs are lower, their opex costs are lower, and then they start to, can potentially start to dictate and dominate the markets. And then the question is, are they going to use Western markets for Western exchanges? No, they'll go to the Chinese. And who else in the future is, if you've got a major copper supplier, they may form the equivalent of OPEC. You might have a, a, an OPEC copper cartel that then starts to go, we're looking after our own interests and we're going to keep the West out of this equation. So we might struggle to find to get these resources we need. So this is back to this point. We need to stop upsetting the rest of the world and going, well, we might disagree with you. In fact, we might fundamentally and ideologically hate you, which is a hell of a word to use. But we need to learn also the flip side is, you know, we need your resources. We need to bury the hatchet, start to have a better relationship with you because in a world of depleting resources and resources is the future, as it's always been, then we might have to go with a begging bowl to you in the future and saying, please give us your cheap energy and please give us your resources. Well, if we stand continually undermine them and try to Great wars and revolutions and you know, color revolutions and wreck your nation economically. You're then able to stand on your own two feet. We're going to, they may turn around and say, sorry, we're, we're not working with you anymore. 
you can freeze. You can not have these resources. And we're not going to compel to sell them to you anymore. Or if we are, here's the leverage. Here's the kicker. We're going to extract all these things from you in return. And they can extract a very high price in terms of what that might mean for the West in the future. And I'm not talking about wars. Just this, you can't do this anymore. I mean, okay, it's a bit of an extreme example, but you could say in potentially in the future that when the West realizes it has no choice but to buy cheap Russian energy and Iranian energy, they could turn around and go, well, here's the deal. NATO doesn't exist in Europe anymore. You're disbanding it. Okay, you don't want to disband it, fine. You don't get any energy. We'll see how long you last, but without cheap and reliable energy uh, sources. So there is all these dynamics in play, and that's back to, in a broader sense, this huge growth potential that exists in the global south, where they haven't consumed themselves into oblivion like we have in the West. They haven't paid salaries where we can't really raise salaries anymore because it's just very inflationary. We haven't, you know, abused the rest of the world and, you know, and upset them in the process. And domestically, we can have huge vertical growth sectors. The problem we have in the West is where's the growth sectors? They don't exist. How do we grow? Because we've had financialization of economies for 40 years, and increasingly so, not you know, how do I achieve real, you know, economic growth? How do I take a euro and make it into a euro 20? You've made this point before. Recycling bits of debt and all this, you know, absolute lunacy that goes on in the financial system is not generating wealth. It's not generating anything in a productive economic sense. Well, you know, we, we need to be doing that and we are unable to do that and increasing in the future as the rest of the world goes through these enormous changes economically, financially, and geopolitically, they're going to look after themselves uh, first and foremost. And if they can satisfy the huge demand versus the supply in those jurisdictions, then we risk, and I'm not being dramatic here, I'm not saying it will happen, I say, but the risk is we could have shortfalls for a very long time until we reform our attitude and our behavior. And and realize the days of being colonialist and, and dictating to the rest of the world are over because now, more than ever in history, it's about resources, it's about energy, it's about food, it's about commodities and who has them, who's willing to sell them, and on what basis are they willing to sell them, and who are they going to sell them to. And, and that's the part the West has spectacularly failed to understand. And we're not, we're not talking about the Ukraine war today, but just to use an example, A, the West spectacularly failed to understand that the global South are all friendly with Russia. The global South will support Russia and Russia will support them. But also failing to ask the question, well, if we don't have their energy, what's the risk that they'll sell it all to them instead? And then what do we do in the future? Because we still need the energy. Where are we going to source it from? And they didn't think of this at all because they were just blinded by the ideological mindset that, that we have to destroy Russia. We have to crush it out of existence, get rid of Putin. We can do this in a few weeks because, you know, this is, this is the West, you know, Hollywood's reality. We're the good guys, and the good guys always win in Hollywood films, so we'll prevail. And, of course, it wasn't that simple because, again, we have this very simplistic viewpoint in the West that 
whatever we think goes. If we believe something, it's going to happen. Well, we're in that point in history where that is all falling apart now, and not just with regards to the Ukraine war, but in a broader sense, these big geopolitical tectonic shifts were Saudi and Iran and now France. They're opening embassies. They're going to trade and work and cooperate with each other. Syria's back in the Arab League. And everyone in the Middle East is going, do you know what? It's great. We're all working together. And we don't need the, the West. As, as, uh, we've finally woken up to the reality of what they're doing. And it's interesting that just a small group, we're kind of you know, moving away from the point, but just a small point in this regard is the Saudis and the Iranians, in terms of their intelligence agencies, sat there with each other and went, well, this happened. And the other side went, yes, because you did it. And the other side went, no. We didn't do this. And they're starting to realize that 90% of the things the Saudis accused the Iranians of and the Iranians accused the Saudis of were works of fiction made up by the West, principally the US and the UK, to keep them at each other's throats. And they're going, well, no, we weren't responsible. Great. Okay. Well, now we've worked that much out. Now we, we never had a problem, really. They caused the problem. And this feeds all into the original point to use copper as an example, where the world's waking up to the reality that we cause the problems and they're not going to tolerate it anymore. And we need to quickly work out that in a resource-hungry world, if we don't have them, what does that mean for us? And that's a huge problem that we just are in totally in denial that it could be a problem going forward. Well, it's a very important point, and I feel like we've been seeing it from the automobile manufacturers, just in the stories we've been seeing, even on the Northern Miner here, that you hear this phrase, you know, that they are making deals with, you know, miners or, you know, processors or whatever in order to, quote, secure supply, you know, and it's not so much about securing supply at a good price, even though I'm sure that's basically what they mean. But it's quite interesting how the language is just to secure supply. You're not hearing about the price in that sentence oftentimes. And it makes you wonder, like, if we are hitting towards, you know, a bottleneck, you know, might be a nice way of putting it in the copper market. To your point about Africa, for example, like, maybe they want to build their own power grid. Why should they build the West's power grid? Like at a certain point, they're probably going to start to ask themselves this question. To your point, like why are we building their stuff, selling them still when copper's still at $4 a pound? We can't sell this stuff. You know, and this word colonization, I feel, is making a comeback here. You see it on YouTube with these small channels. And even the politicians sometimes in these African countries are talking about this neo-colonization. Anyways, any final thoughts there on that before we move on to gold? No, I mean, I think, look, it's, yeah, it exemplifies a commodity and copper is. I mean, sometimes copper gets much maligned. It's one of those kind of commodities that in the last 10, 20 years has been much maligned. Almost people were starting to try and infer that no one needs copper anymore, which wasn't true. But now, because of new technologies and new drives, suddenly copper is hugely important uh, globally. And therefore, the need for copper is only going to increase. So it's an extremely important metal or you know, commodity. And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that not only is it just demand through technological change that's going to drive commodity prices, 
but also demand in jurisdictions that previously may not have consumed as much copper. So, you know, if we take Africa as a continent, which is vastly underdeveloped through no fault of its own most of the time, but it has huge resources. And we've seen the last 20 years infrastructure being built primarily by the Chinese. But if you start to extrapolate that and Africa begins to achieve even 10 or 20% of its real potential. How much commodities are they going to demand to do that? And, you know, if they've got the commodities in Africa, African countries or the, you know, will sell it to each other. They're not going to go, I know, let's make sure we stay underdeveloped to benefit the West. Then it, you know, I hate to use the word war, but we start to have you know, commodities wars effectively and energy wars and, and food security war. Well, not exactly a war, but where there's who's got the supply and you know, they'll want to look after their own interests and they will be able to finance this without relying on the West, without trading in dollars, without the risk of being sanctioned. So it's a perfect environment going forward for them to be able to, I mean, you know, a lot of people go, I don't like the idea of exploiting the planet and, and destroying the ecosystem for, for resources. But at the end of the day, we need resources. We have to have them in the future. Whether people like it or not really is the point. There's a practicality in the reality. We're at this cusp where the environment is going to change. So for financing will be a lot easier for the global south. And their ability to exploit these resources and sell them into kind of domestic markets or regional markets has never been a great possibility. And they'll be able to get the financing and they'll be able to work, as we say, non-dollar terms. And the commodities will be priced in non-dollar terms and the price will reflect true supply and demand and not a situation where we know very obviously that commodities markets in the West don't often reflect true supply and demand and because there's constant manipulation and obviously we'll talk about oil later on and, and that's an interesting point with regards to price manipulation we'll talk about that then with regards to Brent and wti so you can talk about copper but you can apply it to other commodities and the same applies to to food and food security in the future we've spent years trying to warn people in the west about the importance of food security. I mean, just laughed as though, what food security problems? The pandemic happened suddenly, the West had an aneurysm because it realized how vulnerable it was. And that vulnerability is not going to go away because, again, here's the situation, just to, drifting off, but it's an important point. Russia produces enormous amounts of commodities in terms of food, wheat, etc. Well, in the future, where's it going to export it to? The global south, friendly nations nations that it can sell it in non-dollar terms, very favorable terms for everyone. It's a win-win. And if we have less commodities, whether it's food, copper, et cetera, and we're back to that point again as a final point, that poses enormous challenges for us, not in terms of getting the resources, but if we can get it, what's the price we're going to pay? And do we risk being sucked into this long cycle of, of commodity price inflation that will underpin a broader inflation in our economies? And yeah, I mean, when you discuss price manipulation, of course, this has been a long point of contention in the gold community for going probably for decades now. What is your sense of the gold market here? You know, there's the central bank gold buying quite substantial. 
from what it appears over here, China even officially is buying a lot of gold, uh, Turkey. We also hear of the flow of gold from west to east. What is your sense of the gold market right now? Yeah, there's, it's kind of a very interesting sort of paradox in the sense you're absolutely right. And we know this, that, and it's not just central banks in the so-called global south. We've also had European banks buying gold and continuing to want to buy gold. And obviously, yes, there's this ongoing move of deposits from west to east. This has been going on to varying degrees for over a decade. Made the point before that for two and a half years, there was a thousand metric tons a month heading from west to east, primarily China and also Hong Kong. Okay, we haven't seen that level of tonnage going from west to east, but in a broad sense, it's been an ongoing thing. The contradiction is in the west, we still, despite all the obvious economic problems, the financial problems, we still have this perception that, well, it's not really a problem. Look, the average person, doesn't see problems. The average business goes, oh, well, we've got a bit of inflation. Well, so what? We'll manage it. You know, it's inflation. There is no inflation. Then it's transitory. Then it's, well, it's not transitory. Well, it's more long-term. Oh, but, you know, we, we, we've got inflation. We'll get it under control. This is a small blip in in, in the broader problems in, in the economy and in the financial system because they're obviously related to bonds and what interest rates are doing. And we'll, we'll manage our way through it. And often there is the perception for people they, in the West or institutions that there's a little bit of interest. I know this from people who work with institutions in buying gold. But a lot of them go, well, why do I need to do it? What's the problem? Because we're back to the whole fictitious situation with respect to economic financial data. Well, unemployment's low, people say. You know, we're not in a recession. We might, you know, it's... it's it's, well, it might technically be one, but in reality, it isn't because, you know, look, look at the broader context. No, there's nothing wrong. Yeah, we, we haven't got huge economic problems. No, not actually looking at the reality of what's, for example, happening in Germany in terms of deindustrialization, which is very real. People are just ignoring all the warning signs because they're reflecting on all this bogus economic data that gives the impression it's not really a problem. You know, it's just a blip, not. Well, hang on. What are we? What's actually happening? Oh, hang on. There's all these banks going, uh, looking, going to to the bailout window in the U.S. for hundred billion dollars. Well, that doesn't matter. We'll just pretend that's not happening. We'll just pretend that we haven't had this banking crisis. We'll just pretend Germany isn't deindustrializing, and we manipulate data and and convince that GDP is okay. And then what do we do? Three six months later, we revise it. And then oh, yes, Europe now is technically in recession because we've revised our data from Germany and Ireland, as example. So in a broad sense, there isn't still the understanding of why owning gold, it matters because, and again, we also have to caveat, this is an investment advice, but the perception is, well, interest rates are high, gold's you know, a neutral asset. Why do I want to hold this? What's the point? Not. Interest rates are irrelevant. What is the broader problems that you're seeing in the economy, in the financial system? Why would you want to hold gold as 
uh, to some degree is because you know you're basically taking an insurance policy out against all possible outcomes, of which there are many, and we have no control or proper understanding of what that means. So, you know, what what's the broader context of what's going to happen to currencies? Are we really going to stop printing money all the time? I mean, are we going to accept the fact that banks can be effectively massively underwater holding treasuries? And the Fed goes, don't worry, your treasury is worth 20%, 30%, 50% of what it is. We'll give you 100% of the value of it. No problem. Here's 100% of the money, and the Fed's sitting on all the loss. Okay, people say it doesn't matter, but ultimately it does matter. You have to get away from this idea there are no consequences for such actions. And therefore, higher interest rates themselves are destabilizing on the financial system. They're massively destabilizing in terms of the economy. Because what what's it doing for businesses? Every the whole business sector or entire economy depends on cheap credit, endless cheap credit. Well, we don't have that anymore. Credit's becoming more and more of a problem. So if more and more businesses are struggling and deindustrialization continues because of the effects of enormous cost of energy, then in the end, what happens if we end up with massive unemployment? And it's good to use the Netherlands as an example because the Netherlands has this where the state provides for people unemployed and they'll pay your salary for two years. Okay, well, what happens? I think the average salary maybe in the Netherlands is, well, not exactly, but to make the math simple, 40,000 euros a year. Now, let's imagine for argument's sake that there is this huge economic downturn and the state goes, well, we have to keep paying people's benefits. Well, 40,000 euros a year for 2 million people. Just do the, the simple maths. It's 80 billion euros a year. Where's that money coming from? What are you gonna, you're going to have to print it. You're going to have to debase the currency, and you're going to print this money and give it to people who spend it in the economy. Well, then you're going to create inflation. So people are looking at all these very simplistic metrics why you don't need to earn gold, not looking at the broader risks and problems, and why. This will ultimately debase the currency, cause inflation, and why then owning gold and by 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 definition silver is an option that people should consider. And then consider the fact also of well, what happens if we have enormous financial system problem and banks do collapse? And okay, we have all these insurance policies, but what does again? What does that mean in reality? You know what? I don't know what the average. Bank deposits are in in the United States for 300 plus million people. But let's just say, for argument's sake, the average deposit, and I don't, you know, was was five thousand dollars. Bear in mind, there's people with billions and millions, tens of millions. So let's say it's five thousand, and it's on average. Okay, we're playing with the maths a bit. 300 million times the average of five thousand. Well. That's 1.5 trillion they've got to magically produce somewhere to, to give everyone their deposits back. Where does this money come from? The magic money train? I mean, again, there are consequences for this. So this is the problem where people in the West aren't seeing these problems because they keep being told there isn't a problem. Inflation is not a long-standing problem. We've got it under control. Yeah, we may, we may have a recession, but we're not going to have a depression and the recession will be very shallow. It'll be a soft landing. People look at themselves and go, well, I'm okay because I've still got my job. I can pay my bills. 
what's the problem? I mean, if you, the Netherlands is a great example of it. You go out on a Saturday to a local town, you, you go, what's the problem? Because people don't think there's a problem because they don't understand what's going on. So, but the second they lose their jobs, they're in big trouble because the West you know, middle classes are hugely leveraged by definition with debt, with mortgages, et cetera. Well, they lose their jobs. Suddenly they're hugely leveraged. And suddenly the problem that wasn't a problem is a massive problem. And this is partly, again, the situation where in the West we don't see these problems. Whereas this is why everyone, you know, Russians, since the start of the Ukraine war, they're all encouraged Russians to buy gold. And they are, by protection, you know, by insurance. The, the Chinese are the same. That's why central banks are buying gold. And you know, why China keeps all its 600 metric tons of gold production a year internally never leaves the country because they mm -hmm. understand the risks, you know, and okay, there's an argument how much of the West collapsing will it affect China? Well, it didn't affect them at all in 2008, which upsets a lot of people in the West who hate China. They don't like to admit that, but it didn't affect them at all. In fact, China bailed out the West in 2008. Well, they're probably not going to do that this time. And then, but the question is, they understand. So the idea is, you no, know, and we also have to move away from fiat monetary system. So are we going to back currencies with gold in some capacity? Increasingly, those conversations are becoming a reality. So if you're going to do that, what does that mean for the gold price priced in dollar terms, euros or whatever in the future? So there are a huge amount of incentives. Not people throw all their savings into gold or anything. Absolutely not. And also they have to be comfortable that they want to do it. And any investment you have to be prepared to lose the lot, although I think the idea you could lose the lot buying gold is nonsensical, but you get the point. People have to make individual decisions, get professional advice on this basis, but it's very clear that increasingly that the Global South understand the value of gold. They know the need to move away from fiat monetary system. They, and we're back to again, who has the commodities that can back currencies with a basket of commodities? The Global South. So, you know, how does this pan out for BRICS currencies in the future? Okay, there's a lot of logistical issues and things to iron out in that regard, but in principle, there's a logical sense to this. But in the West, we keep going, well, we don't have a problem. What problem? <laughs> Look at 2008, we fixed it. We didn't fix anything. We made things 100 times worse, you know, but increasingly you are starting to see signals in, the housing market, in retail and commercial real estate. We're seeing bankruptcies increasing, the you know, impairment. We're seeing impairment on, on bank balance sheets. There's a lot of very obvious warning signs that should make people go, well, how safe is my fiat currency in a bank? How safe is it in terms of debasement? Because here's the thing, if suddenly millions of people are affected in the Netherlands, they're not going to sit there and let everyone start because they know what the social unrest will I mean, the risks destabilizing the government. They can't afford that, which is why they did during the pandemic, bailed everything, just gave everyone everything. Here's, here's some money, just shut them up, give them something so they don't start going, hang on, I'm starving or I can't pay my mortgage or my rent. The same thing applies. So this is why you're starting to see universal basic income being mentioned. Of course, that's very popular with the conspiracy theorists, not 
as I pointed out to someone who's a big advocate of it. And I said to them, right, let's just do some simple maths. Because they're talking about doing this in the UK with some uh, pilot study to do with this, with 30 people over just 30 out of 68 million people for two years. And they're going to pay them £1,600 a month. Oh, this is a great way forward. And the risk is they may have to do this in the future if there's massive unemployment. Here's the problem with that. If you get 5 million people in the UK on 1,600 a month, uh, pounds that is, that's 8 billion a month. That's 96 billion a year. Again, who's going to pay for it? The magic money tree, money printing. So to save total collapse, you're going to create massive inflation because you'll have to print all this money. So people then will spend it in the real economy. Again, this is back to their big fear. And finally, I think they're starting to understand that if you print money and it's spent in the real economy, you get inflation. So these are hugely inflationary, problematic situations, and they'll have to face this. So again, when we look at all the scenarios that can play out and the risks, then this is why central banks and in the East financial institutions and whatever are going by commodities, by gold. You've got even nations buying silver. Um, the Chinese did it a lot in 2020, 2021, the Indians in 2022, et cetera, et cetera, because they realize that you know, commodities are tangible assets that have value. And in the West, we're all encouraged to go, no, we don't need them. You've got good, reliable fiat currency. What could possibly go wrong? No, inflation's not a problem. Yeah, the banks had a bit of a, a blip, but they're all okay now. Just don't pay attention to all these metrics that we can see developing. So the case for gold has never been stronger, although currently retail sentiment is weak because people are beaten up going, well, I'm sick of the price. You know, it gets over 2,000 an ounce in the dollar terms. Oh, look, it's being beaten back below 2,000. So what? You're not buying it. Trade in fiat terms. You're buying it to protect your assets. and. It's not a fiat trade. And if you think it's a fiat trade, fair enough. But you don't understand why you hold precious metals. And the attitude in the global south is totally different. They understand the value of real money. And gold's real money. And fiat is just synthetic printed money that has no, no value. And because of our policy decisions with QE and printing money in the real economies, particularly since the pandemic, then there are consequences and we have to face those consequences and understand them. But rather like in the West, we fail to see the writing on the wall in very obvious ways. I mean, you know, it's just back to the whole question of energy and we'll come on to oil in the next segment. But you know, we need to start to understand the, the, the reality of what we're facing instead of burying our head in the sand and pretending there aren't problems. I mean, here's an example just in the housing market. The average house price in the Netherlands has fallen 13% since last September. Now, no one here is talking about a housing market problem. Well, 2008, during the, the, the financial crisis, the West would have, would have offended the West and destroyed it. They hadn't done something. It only fell 25%. It's already fallen 13% on the basis that there isn't a problem. But what's it going to fall on the basis when there is a problem? And again, it's just because people 
don't see a problem until it's, I use this horrible crude analogy, but it's true, until there's a ton of manure on their doorstep, they don't see a problem or smell the problem. By then, it's too late to deal with the problem. You know, to your point, this recession, it could be kind of scary in the sense that, you know, there seems to be all these delays, like they talk about monetary policy working in long, is it long and variable lags, that there is a delay. And then there's also the people who there was a bunch of tech layoffs, maybe about six months to a year ago. But then all these people have their, you know, year of money that comes out as part of that, their package on the way out. So it, it does feel like, you know, if masses amounts of people start losing their jobs, like in a proper recession, this could be a scary one. And then, you know, on the flip side of that, are employers going to hire back everybody or are they going to say who can be replaced with AI? And then I'll only hire 50 percent, if that, of my previous staff. So bringing us to our final segment here, which is oil. I mean, we just saw the Saudis last week cut a million barrels of oil, and then there was that big OPEC meeting. You had a great segment recently on your podcast on the oil market, and basically you were suggesting that the West would love to just keep it down as much as possible, and that really OPEC is not playing ball with that idea. Could you speak a little bit about the oil market? Yeah, and let's start with the broader point you just highlighted, which is, look, this has been a long-standing problem where the United States has been screaming at OPEC plus, which predominantly the Saudis and the Russians, I, I would say, dominate, but they're the principal players in that organization. And they've been telling the Saudis to make sure that they don't cut production because they want the price lower. And there's this myth that the US is the biggest oil producer in the world. Problem with that assertion is they're a net importer of oil because they need heavy oil. They produce a lot of light oil, but they need heavy oil. Otherwise, the whole diesel sector would collapse in a blink of an eye. Problem they have is who's the biggest suppliers of heavy oil? None other than the Venezuela. Iran and Russia talk about upsetting the very people, you know, bite them. it's not even biting the hand that feeds. Shot the hand off who could feed you and, and then demand we need this oil, which is why privately the US keeps importing Russian oil and they just don't tell the rest of the world what's going on because remember, we're sanctioning Russia into oblivion with, with energy. So in a broader sense, that's been going on for a long time. The Saudis have publicly come out, the Russians also, but I think, you know, the, the geopolitical climate being the way it is, no one wants to believe anything the Russians say. Okay, fair enough. But when the Saudis effectively very politely came out and talked about the United States manipulating the oil markets, meaning you're screwing with the paper price. You're trying to dump your strategic petroleum reserves to try and smash the price and create much more supply than demand. So we're going to keep cutting energy. We're going to keep cutting oil to force the price up because whilst the, the Russians can comfortably manage selling oil at $40 a barrel equivalent and the Iranians probably 20 or 30, the Saudis can't. They need to be selling it at $80 a barrel. So the Saudis go, well, we need the oil price to rise. Okay, Saudis going through its own rotation economically, but that's a separate discussion and looking for massive alternatives to just being an oil producer. 
So on the back of all that, we recently had yeah this OPEC uh, meeting where you know they made this decision and said, look, you know we're going to extend cuts in obviously crude oil output that was agreed previously beyond the initial expiry date of December 2023, and we're gonna we're gonna extend that to the end of 2024. They also said it would reduce overall production targets from 2024 by 1.4 million, 1.5 million barrels a day. The Saudis, as you pointed out, made these additional voluntary cuts. What a surprise from July, 1 million barrels a day. That's significant. I mean, we're talking about 8% reduction in production. And obviously, this agreement to further cut production was trying to quote, mop up what OPEC sees as this glut in the amount of oil available globally. And, and it says, look, we have to price accordingly. And Russia's extended its own voluntary oil production cut by 500,000 barrels a day till the end of 2024 also. Of course, to put all this in context, I'm sure people know this, but OPEC plus counts for a significant, not a majority, but 40-odd percent was crude oil. So these moves are basically to say to the Americans, look, you can keep trying to manipulate the markets, but we'll do likewise. You know, we believe also logically that there's going to be a less demand for oil. They phrase it in a way that they're not accusing the West, but in, in essence, they're going, we know the West's going to collapse economically. We believe there's going to be a serious depression. So your oil requirements are going to be drastically reduced. So therefore, on that basis, you know, we're going to cut production because we, there's no point in us producing all this oil and price being a lot cheaper when there's no need for it. Okay, there's some counter arguments because China's economy is ramping up. Although, you know, a lot of it's to do with, well, they, they're now out of this lockdown regime. And if you look at China's economy, that's a bit of a myth. There wasn't really any lockdown with China's economy economy in the sense of industrial and manufacturing output, et cetera. But anyway, in a broader sense, there's this belief with regards to the energy markets that, look, you know, we're going to keep cutting production, but it's as much as ending it's a price war with the U.S. And the U.S. will try to do everything to try and drag the price down because why the U.S. needs to buy enormous amounts of the energy because it needs heavy crude. So, it's in its interest to go, we don't want higher energy prices. But the flip side is that if you keep reducing energy prices and the U.S. produces shale oil, shale oil is not cheap to produce. So they're actually affecting their own profit margins on shale oil sales. And this is something that often gets misunderstood. But it's a trade-off between what can we sell our oil for. Shale oil production is beginning to tail off. I wouldn't say this is only an opinion. I'm not, I wouldn't say it's factually the case, but I'm increasingly coming of the opinion that shale oil production in the US is, we're now telling, well, I think we've reached the maximum. I don't think they're going to be able to increase it. And I think it's this gradual tail off, and it may at some point fall off a cliff edge. But in a broader sense, with regards to energy markets, this is very much multipolarity playing out against unipolarity. It's saying to the Americans, you don't dominate energy markets. This isn't the 1970s. By the way, we are going to trade in energy terms in non-dollar terms. And yeah, we are going to trade with the Chinese in the US. We already are to a small extent. You know it. We know it. 
everybody knows it privately, but publicly it's not being discussed, but we don't care. We, we, we're going to do our the things the way we want to do it. And we don't care anymore for, for your interference. And you know what it's back to, what are you going to do? Remove the House of Saud? What are you going to do? Overthrow the Iranians, the Iraqis, and every OPEC plus member? Because let's just look at the reality of this and how many nations this encompasses. There's this thing called the Joint Ministerial Monitoring Committee, which is part of OPEC plus. I mean, that's 13 OPEC core members. And there's 11 allied non-member countries. So this encompasses enormous amount of nations. And they're all in agreement. The West likes to tell us all. They're all at each other's throats because, and they're not. They sometimes turn up a meeting and they've got some differences, slight differences of opinion. And then they sit there like adults and work it out, go, okay, this is what we're going to do. And okay, if you want to make some voluntary cuts, you can do that. But this is the core principle of what we're doing. And then they put it out and then they just put it into, into operation, and and it works perfectly well. And the United States is cut out of this. They have nothing to do with setting prices. Okay, they can try and manipulate red and WTI, but I made the point in the podcast. Long-term contracts aren't settled based on spot prices today. It's a negotiated price. Now, that could depend on a whole bunch of factors, not least how much do you want, when do you want it, What's the availability now? And you'll pay this price accordingly. So people cheerleading, smashing the spot price of WTI and Brent going, this is hammering Russia's bottom line for oil revenues, nonsense. And why are we seeing in the first quarter of 2023 reporting record profits? Because this exemplifies the myth about spot prices. But from the US's perspective, because they've tried to encourage the West to not have long-term contracts in oil and gas with the Russians. This has been going on prior to the Ukraine war. And they're trying to find a way, well, let's settle in the spot market. Let's see if we can gouge some some oil out the spot market. So if we smash the oil price, then we can benefit on that basis. But this is a situation if OPEC plus just keep digging in their heels, in the end, they'll create a situation. And particularly if the West craters economically we end up in a serious recession, a stroke depression. Then the question is, they'll just keep cutting and cutting. And the risk, of course, is eventually, if the demand is significantly reduced in the West, they'll then start going rather like Russia has. Well, we're going to sell it to all these alternative markets. We may end up creating a situation where we cut off our nose to spite our face, and we're not going to have access to these energy markets. We're back to the problem of, buying cheap energy, whether it's oil or gas in the future, relatively. But I mean, there's a lot of speculation what happens to the oil price. I don't concern myself with that. I mean, yeah, it could be $80, $90 a barrel at some point. And it remains to be seen. But in a broader sense, the energy markets have shifted. The West doesn't control them anymore. The Global South does. OPEC Plus does. And, you know, I made the point in an article on the website in 2016 when OPEC Plus was formed. And Russia became part of that. This is the end. This is revolutionizing energy markets. This is the end of this perception of Western dominance of those markets. And this is very much what's unfolding. And the US is powerless to do anything about it. And of course, it's interesting that Blinken rolls up into to Saudi and upsets the Saudis, like every American Biden administration official does. And then Blinken goes and MBS picks up the phone talks to Putin and, and of course, he's going to tell them exactly what the uh, 
the Americans, the odds they were shouting about, you're not going to trade with Russia, you're not going to do this, that, they're just ignoring them. And then what do they talk about? The Saudis and the Russians, there's a readout that goes, oh, we're going to build up an even stronger trade and economic ties and the implementation of projects in energy note and, of course, investment, transport, logistics, etc. And that's just a way of saying, you know, we're going to continue working together. We may be both big producers, but there's a role for us both to work in energy terms together. And the West scratching its head going, well, why would Saudi and Russia work together? They're both big oil producers. Why do they need each other? This doesn't make sense. Well, it makes sense because they don't understand what's happening in terms of the energy markets. They don't understand how the world's radically changing and how in the future the global south will need huge amounts of energy because they're going to go through this big, huge growth in economic terms, and that requires energy. So they're just looking at the world again because as far as they're concerned, the world is that. The world is the United States, the UK, Europe, arguably. Australia, to some extent, increasingly not New Zealand and Japan and South Korea. That's the world as far as the United States is concerned. Well, 80 you know, plus percent or 88 percent of the world's population isn't in those countries. And these are the areas that have this huge growth potential. So this makes eminent sense by this huge Chinese investment as well in Saudi, this huge Russian investment. The Saudi investment in China and Russia, and it's all not exclusive, but a lot of it's in energy terms because China has enormous energy potential growth to produce cheap energy themselves, and their energy markets are growing as well. And what's the one thing in the West? Our energy markets are in massive decline, not just because of this big push for the Green Revolution, but because our deposits are dwindling. And the global south barely scratched the surface. So we're back to this whole thing where I hear about the energy cliff and we're running out of fossil fuels. It's nonsense. Russia has alone the capability to provide the entire world with oil and gas for the next 200 years. Yes, 200 years. Never mind what Iran's got or the Middle East's got or China's got or or. Uh, Southeast Asia or Africa. We don't have a problem. That's We have a problem because we in the West think we have a problem and we think the problem, we are the world. So if we have a problem, the world has a problem. The world doesn't have a problem, but we have a huge problem. We're back to, we need to just grow up, have better relations with the rest of the world, accept we have differences and stop all this zero-sum game nonsense. Well, to your point, too, it's almost like this, the West saying we are the world. I mean, it's kind of funny. There was that 1980s song. I think they were saying we are the world. But the West's Achilles heel is resources. And it's almost like when you see all this activity at OPEC between Russia, you know, China's been investing in resources for the last 20 years. I mean, for example, tech resources, they bought, a, I think, a 15% stake in 2008, 2009, during that crisis, quite shrewdly. Mm -hmm. It's like the rest of the world knows it, and it's almost like the West kind of knows it. It started to clue in in the last year and or two from the politicians, but it's still quite theoretical at this point. So we're running out of time here. Do you, do you have any final words for us, Paul? 
Yeah, look, it's, you know, it's back to this situation where we are in this paradigm shift where there are huge changes happening. And, you know, people always keep referring to historical perspectives to get answers, as though history will always provide us with clues to future developments. And there is some element of truth. You know, in history, we can find, you know, pointers to the future. But when we go through a paradigm shift, a lot of that historical perspective goes out the window. It's meaningless. It doesn't have relevance anymore. And we're at that point where a lot of it's irrelevant. We are in so-called uncharted waters where the world is going to radically change and the West needs to find a place in that world. And it has to, on that basis, realize that the zero-sum game, unipolarity, this kind of mentality of them and us is over. And the rest of the world moves on and they don't, the West doesn't want to be part of it, it's going to suffer enormously as a consequence. China's an interesting, and that's probably a whole separate subject for another time, but I've always made the point, Russia is not China and Ukraine is not Taiwan. And for the West, there is an enormous sense of, hang on, there are consequences. There's more of a nuanced thought process going on because, because China is very, very different. And then, and, you know, China is, we don't have this historical Cold War kind of mentality with respect to China. Uh, historic, you know, since the Soviet days and you know, post World War II and the Soviet Empire, the Warsaw Pact, etc. So there is some difference in in perspectives. But the West has sat there going, it's not changing. The world's the same. This is a little blip. Everyone will just come back to the US. Everyone will want the dollar. Everyone will just want things the way they are. And the world's going, no, we're sick of that. There's a new way. It's called behaving like adults. It's called win-win cooperation. It's called, I've got something you need. You've got something I need. How can we work together? And in the process, we both mutually benefit. It benefits our economies. It benefits our people. And, and also, you know, it's just the sense where we have forgotten, in essence, you know, we went through this industrial revolution in the West. Okay, we can people will agree and disagree about whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. But we've forgotten what caused that industrial revolution and how we were able, in good ways and very bad ways, to take advantage of that, whereas we're going through another big technological and revolution where traditional workplace is going to radically change and won't be relevant anymore, and we've forgotten how important it is that if there is this revolution, we need to have a society that's educated in those ways. We need mathematicians, engineers, physicists, chemists, biologists. I'm not saying the world revolves around science. It doesn't. But we've forgotten it. And we we now have a situation we don't have. We've denigrated it. And and for me, I mean, I I look back. I was originally a physicist, okay? So I look at how... No, but no one wants to study it anymore. It's just like a dead subject. Well, this is important. If, you, if you're having a technological revolution in the world, and what's China done? China has been making a big play on educating people in those environments and in those subjects. And that's why, yes, they used to steal all their technology. Of course, that's true, but they don't anymore. They're now market leaders because they understood that you need people educated who, who it's appropriate to. 
in these fields, and they're now taking advantage of it. We've forgotten all this, pretended it doesn't matter. But, you know, and it's the one thing with empires, they always fail because of their arrogance and their ignorance and how they treat the people that made their empires. And we've fallen into the trap and we've, we're just fading into obscurity. And other nations are understanding the value of and what's important and how they need to be able to position themselves going forward. And we've just destroyed everything, which means we have nowhere to go unless we can radically industrialize, take advantage of all the tech revolution in the future, pay people salaries. That means we can afford to be competitive, which means we have to blow everything up. If you pay Chinese wages, we blow everything up. Can't do it. So what do we do and how do we address those challenges? And we're not even thinking about this because we're the West. Hey, we rule the roost. We're in control. You know, We're in charge. What's the problem? Well, we're not anymore. And the problem is there's not enough people understanding what that means in real terms and how we address these fundamental imbalances we have societally, economically, financially, politically. That's a huge subject in itself, but it's something I think people in the West need to be thinking of more going forward. All from the Serious Report, thank you once again for the in-depth and fascinating explanations of your views of the world. Well, thank you. Another fascinating marathon interview with Paul from the Sirius Report, who we thank again for appearing on the program. It is always interesting. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.